0: First John chapter 2. When, uh, when I was in ninth grade, uh, our, our ninth grade was a little bit different than it is around these parts. Uh, I think it's uh, something that's kind of happened all over the country. Back in my day, ninth grade was uh, a part of the junior high and uh, in the part of Miami that I lived in. If you were in ninth grade, you know, in the junior high, it was kind of like you were at the top of the food chain. You know, um, you were, you were, you know. By the time you get to ninth grade, you're a little bit tougher than most of the the people that are around you. And and I just got to tell you, I I had this this reputation. Now, when I was in ninth grade, I, I wasn't saved. You, some of you won't be able to see this. I, I've been get, getting as much mileage out of this as I can. Um, this is this is a picture of your pastor when he was at that period of time in his life. Um, oh, I know that all of you young ladies are going, "Why couldn't I have been born in a different era?" <laughs> is that is that wild, man? Um, this can you guys see that over there? Uh, I'll leave it up here for those of you that would like to get a a closer look at this gig, but. Um, Say what? Uh, autograph glossies? You bet. We'll be sending those up for you right up here. But at, at this period of time in my life, I had this reputation that I, I really didn't deserve. I I don't know for sure how it happened, but I had this reputation of being a a wild person when it came to fighting. I mean, it, really, I mean, people. I, I would I would be friends with people. Uh, you know, strike up a friendship after a few years, and, and they would, you know, we'd be spending the night one night, and they would say, uh, Hey, tell me about that time when those guys came to, to, to get you, that the big gang of them, and you picked up the, the leader of the pack and threw him against the wall. And I'm like, uh, Yeah, um, yeah, I'll tell you all about that. Uh, that was, yeah, that was a time in my life. I was a little weak back You know, you know what? I don't know where in the world that thing came from, but I kind of had this reputation going through school, and because of it, nobody messed with me, and that was kind of nice, because I wasn't near as tough as they thought that I was, but there was one day, we were out in uh, in, in the field, and uh, I, I was at uh, phys ed at that time, PE, and uh, and there were some kids from my neighborhood, younger kids that that assembled there, and this was at a period of time when... In Miami, the there was some major, major racial tension, as there was in a lot of the major cities of the world in the late 60s and early 70s, and, and we were in the big fat thick of it. In fact, our school made Walter Cronkite when I was in ninth grade. I mean, it, it was it was a big deal what was going on there. And just about this time, when the white and the black thing was was so so tense, we started getting into the city of Miami this great influx of. Cubans, okay, and because they were still just learning the language, they would pack together and and huddle together in big, massive groups, and so what began to happen is the attention turned from it being a black, white thing to being a black Cuban kind of thing in in our particular area, and so there were these, uh, this group of Cubans that had, had gathered together out in the phys ed field, and here were these, you know, poor dejected little kids from my neighborhood that needed somebody to stand up for them. And so, you know, they're they're kind of pushing them around and everything. And so I left my phys ed class and I come over, you know, thinking I'm all that in a bag of chips, you know. So I get in their face and I said, you know what, man? You you know, and I'm, you know, getting in their face and talking all this stuff of what I'm going to do if they don't leave my friends alone, you know, that tough guy garbage. And so, you know, I'm walking back. Thinking um, all that, and the coach, the phys ed coach, calls me over and he says, uh, Trotter, let me let me let me just help you with something." What I found to be true—I didn't know the wisdom of what he was about to say—but what, what I found to be true is, if you're going to do something, you'd be better off to just do it, as opposed to talk about it. Because he says, "Those who do, do, and those who don't talk about it." And I'm like, what is "This guy's philosophizing with me. What's up with you, man?" I, so I had two more hours left in the day after my phys head class, and I noticed by my last hour that there were lots of people that didn't speak my language that were huddling around the people that I had just gotten their face. And I'm in shop class in my last hour, and I'm just a little bit nervous at this point, because there was a whole lot of them. And I'm thinking, okay, how many exits out of this place are there, you know? And uh, so I I went out a different way than I had ever gone at any other time. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I walked into school the next day a little bit differently than I had walked all of the previous days. And my reputation for being a big, tough guy wasn't quite as glaring to me at that point. I had been humbled just a little bit and came into class just a little bit nervous on that day. And what was characteristic of me when I was in ninth grade as a, a big old 15-year-old who had the world in his hands is described for us in the book of 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. What our Lord does for us is He he delineates at least three levels of spiritual growth. Now, there's actually seven total in in the Bible. We won't go into all of those. He, He delineates three of those here. Little children, you see them in verse 12. And then fathers, you see that at the beginning of verse 13. And then you see it at the beginning of verse 14 also. But there is an intermediate group a group of people that he refers to spiritually now. okay, This is not in terms of physical uh, life, but you, what you find in the scripture is God takes the physical things of life to be examples for us and illustrations for us of spiritual life and spiritual truths. There's an intermediate group. You've got children and you've got fathers, and then there is a young group in between there that he refers to as young men. And he says... Uh, Look in the middle of verse 13. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And drop down in the middle of verse 14 again as he addresses them. I write unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. You see, something happens when you're about 15 years of age. Your your body starts to become a whole lot like an adult, and so you begin to think that you've got it all. You know, you think that you are strong. and, And you know what? You are. At uh, 15 years of age, I'm telling you, uh, you're you're at a, a strapping time of life, man. I mean, you're a you're a strong person, but the tendency is for 15-year-olds. I, I don't think I'm an isolated case. 15-year-old young people kind of tend to think they're a whole lot tougher than they really are, and every once in a while, they need to get put in their place, and the the same thing happens. Okay, we've got it where it happens in physical life. It happens in spiritual life to individuals, but what I want you to see is that these are also levels of spiritual growth that happen in a church. And and I think that if I were going to try to to place where we are as a church right now, where we are spiritually as far as our growth is concerned, I, I think we're at that young man stage. And I think by... In a large degree, the Word of God abides in us, and because of that, in many areas, we have been able to overcome the wicked one. But let's understand something about young men. And that is that sometimes they tend to be cocky, and sometimes they think they're tougher than they really are. I want you to just file that in your mind as we move ourselves back into the book of Revelation this morning. And I'll tell you why I'm saying all of that in just a second. But we started off uh, the book of Revelation somewhat slow, and we, we've done that by design. Uh, John, in the first eight verses of this book, is, is laying a foundation for the whole rest of the book. And we have had so many people that uh, have been one to Christ here of late, so many people who have been coming in because of. The, the series on the, the book of Revelation, that, that I felt like what we needed to do as we were laying this foundation and as the Lord is laying this foundation for this book that we're studying together, that this would be a great time trying to, to, to try to help th- some of these new people to get a biblical foundation and understand not just some of these verses, but how some of these verses are connected to all uh, of the Word of God. And in so doing, I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to be able to review some of the things that through the years have helped us to get to the point to where we are, where we are spiritually as spiritual young men. Okay? We began in verse 1. It begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? And what it did for us is it allowed us to review some of the key principles of Bible study when we hit that because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the wisdom of God is something that we cannot know. It is something that must be revealed to us. And so we, we started by just going through some of the basic principles of Bible study that have, have caused all of us to grow and to be an opportunity for others to begin to, to learn about some of these same principles as well. And since he begins also in verse 1, talking about this thing of revelation, what it did is it allowed us in previous weeks to review what we believe about the Bible, that it is God's. Perfect, complete revelation to man. So we've been able to review that. It's, it's, it's key stuff. Those are things that as a fellowship we had to learn together that this is, in fact, God's perfect and complete revelation to man and the capping stone of all of it is the book of Revelation. Verse 1 also talks about the things which must shortly come to pass. And the end of verse 3 says for the time is at hand. And so what it allowed us to do together as a church is just review the fact of what time it is as far as God's clock is concerned. And we hit verse 4 where it talks about the seven churches of Asia, not the six, not the eight, when there were a whole lot more than seven, but he addresses seven churches of Asia. And what it did is it opened up The whole Bible to us on this thing of 7 and how the 6th day of Genesis chapter 1 is about to be completed on this planet around the year 2000 and then we will enter into the 7th day of Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. And so we were able to do that. And also in verse 4, John shows us the greeting. He says grace and peace, but we noted the fact that though John is the human author of this thing, The offer of grace and peace and the greeting of such is not something that John himself was given. We we began to note how it is from the Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And so what it did is allowed us to review God's supreme message to man in the Bible, and that is that God wants us to be able to be recipients of His grace and being a recipient of His grace, we can then experience His peace. And then we hit verse 7. Verse 7 talks about the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right, right here in that seventh verse. And He gives to us the theme of the whole book of Revelation. But what we began to do is begin to review for all of our guests and for all of us the fact that not only is the second coming of Jesus Christ the theme of the book of Revelation, it is the theme of God's entire book of Revelation. It is the theme of the entire Bible. And so we took three solid messages to just deal with verse 7, the the theme of the Bible. And and, and look at it in verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Do you remember last week what we began to see is the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this planet. And he says on that day, every single eye is going to behold the glory of the Lord. And even the people that pierced him, so we began to see that it, it transcends geography. It transcends time. It transcends space. It transcends every race on this planet. Every eye is going to behold the glory of the Lord. And we began to see that with the clouds that he is coming in, It is a day of destruction. We saw from Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12 what what is to me the most mind-boggling, the most incredible thing as you begin to see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ unleashed on this planet where it says that people, as they behold the glory of the Lord that they rejected in this life, what will take place is their skin will literally melt off their bodies, their eyes will melt in the sockets and the tongue will melt, and check it out in Zechariah chapter 14, and verse 12. Unbelievable. God is, in that day, going to set things right, and we began to talk about the glory that is due His name, and what it's really going to mean for the Lord Jesus Christ when He takes that throne, what it's going to mean to the heart of God for His Son to finally get on this planet the glory that He deserves, and after coming through all of it, John's response. A little bit different than most of ours in the last three weeks, to be quite honest about it. John's response in verse 7 was, Even so, Amen. Thank you. You know what, guys? Verse 7 ought to just rock our world. We ought to be so in love with the appearing of Jesus Christ that something happens to us. When somebody starts talking about that... You know, Tom Gang mentioned to me uh, last Sunday night. This, this, is, this is great. He said, you know what? As you were preaching up there, he said, I was, I was feeling like I need to clap. I need to stand up. I need to shout. I need to say amen. He said, but you know what? If you walked out there and you told the people tonight, and you told the people, you know what? They just overturned the Roe versus Wade decision. Amen! And everybody would go... Amen. Talk about the glorious day of the Lord—the day that God has circled on His calendar and He has been waiting for it through all time. The day when His Son will come to this earth. And we can't buy. And amen. Okay, so that's the rebuke right now. Okay, now from from here on out. If you find anything in this message that you feel is worthy of an amen, don't wimp out. Amen. Now, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to make a priority what the Lord makes a priority. Now, today, we come to verse 8, where John reveals to us in in a very concise but profound way, sound doctrine concerning what is, in my estimation... The most important doctrine in the entire Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you young people, I want to make sure that you hang with this. You need to learn this terminology because that's the way that most people refer to it. When we're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Deity means God. What we're saying about the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is god not that he is a god but he is the god that folks is the most important doctrine in the bible now remember spiritual young men first baptist okay now we're coming back remember spiritual young men that we can't allow ourselves to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think because I know, I know that what's beginning to happen right now is some of you folks are already looking at what verse 8 says, and I encourage you to do so as it lays out for us. I'm telling you, in the most beautiful way, the absolute fact of the deity of Christ. And some of you right now are beginning to think, I wonder how long... He's going to dwell on this subject because I notice in the study sheet that this message says that it is part one. And you know what? The deity of Christ is something that I have known and I have believed for absolutely years. So you know what? Y'all wake me up when we get to something that's a little more, you know, where I live. Maybe something that's a little more challenging to me than the simple deity of jesus christ and, and i want to just say to you i'm going to challenge you before it's all over today okay spiritual young men i'm warning you i'm going to challenge you so 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 hang with it and, and you know what as we're talking about this thing of the doctrine of the deity of jesus christ i, I feel like what we need to, to make sure that we do i feel like we need to stop here this morning to talk about this thing of doctrine and, and again specifically concerning the doctrine of the deity of of Jesus Christ, because the Lord had some very sobering things that he wanted us to understand about doctrine when it comes to the very period of time that we are presently living in. Now, most of you folks that have been here for a few years, you understand the term Laodicea or Laodicean. Some of you folks are guests today, and I am going to take about 60 seconds to dial you in so that for the rest of the day, we can just make reference to that. Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven letters to seven churches that our Lord wrote. They were actual, literal, historical churches, and we're going to cover those. But as you begin to put them into the whole of the context of the book of Revelation, there's no doubt about the fact. We'll prove it again. We've already done so at the beginning. We'll prove it again that those are seven periods of church history. The seventh is the Laodicean period. It is the period of time that we are presently living in right now. And concerning the last days, concerning this Laodicean church period, the Lord has some things that he wrote to Timothy that he wanted us to know about this very time that we are living in. He writes to Timothy, his young son in the faith, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse two, he writes to him, and he says, "Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine." Now listen, for the time will come, for the time will come." come and folks we are presently living in the fulfillment of those times the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears in other words rather than wanting to hear what they need to hear they'd rather have somebody tell them what they want here and so they seek out teachers not that is going to give them what they need but they're going to give them what they want in laodicea and let me show you at least two key ways that we see that prophecy being fulfilled in our very generation how sound doctrine is not endured in these last days and again every single one of us needs to make sure that we're listening right now because there are people in this very room this morning who are fulfilling this prophecy. You are, some of you are fulfilling this prophecy. So, so before you just pass this off, and go, well, I already know all this doctrine trash. Let's just make sure that in the midst of knowing all this doctrine trash, that we're not violating and not fulfilling one of the very basic principles that God said would be true of this time. One of the first ways that sound doctrine is not being endured within the realm of Christianity right now is in the simple fact that in many cases, sound doctrine is viewed as an interruption to unity in the body of Christ. Now, now, and I'm telling you, this is, it's the most amazing thing in all the world in light of the verse that we just saw in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 3, where the Lord clearly prophesied about doctrine in the last days. But I'm telling you guys, we are actually living at a time right now where the heed and call in Christian circles is to lay aside our our divisive doctrines and let's all unify under the banner of the name of Jesus. Does that sound like what you hear all over in Christianity? Listen, Jesus is what's really important, not doctrine for God's sake, and listen, if you name the name of Jesus here tonight, if you name the name of Jesus, I want you to know that your heart is with me. And if Jesus is just all right with you, then you're all right with me. And I'll just tell you straight up, folks, this is a church that doesn't believe that for an absolute minute. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, first of all, we've got a question. We want to know which one. Which Jesus do you name? Someone says, well, isn't that, brother, a a rather negative approach? I mean, shouldn't we just believe the best about people? Okay, well, let me just ask you now. What kind of answer do you want right now? Do you want me to answer with the the Christian and, and spiritual answer, or do you want a biblical and scriptural answer? Well, regardless of what you want, let me give you a biblical one, okay? Should we just accept everyone and, and believe everyone and embrace everyone who names the name of Christ? Folks, the biblical answer is positively, most assuredly, unashamedly, absolutely not. No! Listen, the Lord tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, listen to it. Beloved, believe not. Ooh, sounds pretty negative to me. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Why? Why is that so important? Why take that that negative, guilty-until-proven-innocent attitude? The rest of the verse goes on and tells you why. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And rest assured, folks, the false prophets that this verse is talking about are not going out preaching about Buddha, Muhammad, Hare Krishna, Confucius, or anyone else. Guess who they're preaching about? Tell me. Jesus, that's why you've got to ask, which one? And and notice, John writes this in approximately 90 A.D., and when John wrote this, check it out, there were already many in 90 A.D., guys. I mean, we can't even get out of the first century. And by 90 A.D., many false prophets had already gone out into the world preaching Jesus and if there were many in 90 A.D., and Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 that evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse, let me just ask you, how many do you think there would be today, 1,907 years after John wrote that? You see, that's why you can't drop doctrine for the sake of... Of unity under the banner of the name of Jesus because you see there's all kinds of people today folks listen all kinds of people who are running around naming the name of of Jesus today people calling themselves Christians gather in some of the largest civic centers and arenas in this country to watch men peacock themselves around a, a, a stage Casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and Matthew chapter seven talks about some people who will come at the, before the Lord one day and say, "Did we not cast out demons in your name?" Okay, so I'm not impressed. But they're going around on the stage and they're talking about you know casting this out in the name of of Jesus. And as they're they're walking around, they're they're waving a Bible up in the hair the air, and they're they're preaching the name of Jesus. And there's others at this period of time in in our culture who put the name Jesus Christ on the the very front of their church. I mean, their church has got the name of Jesus Christ right in their name. Others are are out handing out literature talking about a a kingdom over which Jesus Christ is going to rule on this planet. Over 144,000 witnesses and you've got all of these things going, going on in the name of Jesus. The only problem is the Jesus that every one of those people that I just talked about are naming and preaching and assembled under and supposedly magnifying, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because for it to be the Jesus of the Bible, it must, the Jesus must match the doctrine of the Bible when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And just as a little side light to let you, some of you know where we're coming from, People ask us all the time why we don't involve the men of this church in the great move of the Spirit called Promise Keepers. I'll tell you why. Because I'm not 20 minutes into this message, and through just what I've said thus far already, and I'm just getting warmed up, y'all, okay? And just through what I've said thus far, if I were to be invited to preach at a Promise Keepers meeting, and I made the statements there that I just made here, they would have already me off the stage. They were already pulled the the crook and and got my divisive behind right off of that stage before I messed anything else up. And you wonder why we won't take our men. Now now thus far in the movement, I got to tell you, I think it's going to change, but thus far in the movement, I don't have near as much problem with what they say as I do what they don't say. See, and that's what you better start listening for what they're not saying because I'm telling you, They're not allowed to say the things that I just said about this name of Jesus thing. Because that's the whole rallying point. If you name the name of Jesus, you're cool. You're all right. And turn back to, you don't need to, I think it's up here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Hey, you're more than welcome to if you'd like. That's cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And watch what the teaching is to the church about this thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, because Paul's dealing here with the same subject matter that John was dealing with there in in 1 John chapter 4. But what Paul does here is he goes into a little more detail about who these false prophets actually are and what their message is all about. And Look at what he calls them in verse 13. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel. I mean, hey... Don't be all freaked out about that. Don't act like, oh, I just can't imagine that. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. And folks, listen, don't ever, don't ever, ever, ever in your life I don't care how mature you think you are. I don't know how, or or immature you think you are. Don't let that verse right there, don't ever let that one get out of your mind. Satan has ministers. And they are ministers of, what does it say? Righteousness. Their nice smile and winsome personality and polished speech and their Godly life, folks, listen, it's all real nice. It's just not a proof of anything. It's not proof of anything. You, you've got to train yourself biblically. You've got to make sure that your determination is upon something other than that. And, and based upon what Paul said just a, a little bit earlier here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you know what? You better get beyond just the righteous words you hear hear them use because Paul says that these false apostles, these deceitful workers, these ministers of Satan that have transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness that most of Christianity today thinks are ministers of Christ. That's the sad truth. Most Christians think that the people that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 11, most of them think that they're ministers of Christ. They can't see behind the shadow of their smile. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 4, he says they preach about Jesus. They preach about receiving the Spirit. They preach the Gospel. And the reason you've got to train yourself as a Bible believer to ask which one is because if you'll notice very carefully right here in verse 4, Though the one they preach about is named Jesus, it's another Jesus. The spirit they, they preach about receiving, though they call him the Holy Spirit, Paul says it's another spirit. The gospel they keep talking about, and you think they mean the gospel over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, but Paul says it's another gospel. So let me very solemnly warn you, don't you ever drop doctrine for any cause. Don't you ever allow yourself to get worried about doctrine interrupting something you think that God is wanting to do. Listen, the unity God wants us to experience in the body of Christ is a unity that is based on sound doctrine. It is always based on sound doctrine. I'm foaming at the mouth, man. I'm, I'm seeing stuff on there. I'm thinking, i got lint. It ain't lint. It's spit, man. Paul said, listen to this. Paul said in, in Romans 16, 17, and I want you to notice this verse very, very carefully, folks. The Lord says to us through Paul, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses... Contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Now I want you to look very carefully at that verse and I want you to tell me who is it that he's talking about here that is causing division. Check it out. It's not the people who are holding fast to sound doctrine, is it? God tells you right here that the ones who have caused the division in the body, the ones who who have interrupted the unity in the body, are the ones who laid hold of a doctrine that is contrary to the doctrine taught in this book. Don't blame me for being divisive. God says the people who divided were the ones who grabbed the hold of a doctrine contrary to the teaching of this book. And he said now that they've done that, check it out. Number one, mark them. And number two, avoid them. But for God's sake, folks, don't drop sound doctrine so you can join them. Now, y'all, I'm doing a whole lot better preaching than y'all are doing amen right now. Amen? Okay, well, I just wanted to see if we agreed at least on that point. God says, if there's are and doctrine contrary to the doctrine of this book, avoid them. Now I know, you don't like that. Make sure you understand. Your problem ain't with me. Your problem is with what God said. They were divisive when they left our unity around sound doctrine. You see, we all had this book, and we were all just huddled all around it, and there they left to go grab some doctrine that you can't find right there. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 3, Paul said, If any man teach Otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, verse 5 instructs, from such withdraw thyself. People say, well, you know, we need to set doctrine aside because, you know, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we'd all be one. Couldn't you drop your doctrine just long enough for us to be to fulfill the prayer of Jesus? Oh, and it sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Oh, oh, we just want unity, brother. You know what? Jesus did pray that. But he qualified exactly what kind of oneness or unity he wanted us to have. He said in John 17, that they may be one even as we are one. And if you understand the context there, the we is he and his father. Okay? And I'm praying, Father, that they will be one as we, Father, are one. Now, let me ask you. What doctrine do the Father and Son lay aside that they may be one? None. Amen? None. They don't lay doctrine aside. You know why they don't lay doctrine aside? Jesus told us very clearly in John 7, 16. Listen to it. My doctrine isn't mine, but his that sent me. You see, the Father and Son could be perfectly unified. They could be one because they were one doctrinally. And you know what? This is this is real simple. You and I will be one when My doctrine becomes his doctrine, and your doctrine becomes his doctrine. Not when we set our doctrines aside and say, let's get gushy-gushy with one another, let's cry on each other's shoulder and everything. Because this is important to the body for us to do this. You you see, and, and then we can be unified with everybody else who has made their doctrine his doctrine. This is, this is pretty basic stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's not hard. But now, but listen, I'm going into all of this because I, I just want to make sure as we continue to move down the road and, and we, we start to get into some things that are a little more practical than all this doctrinal trash, but I, I'm, I'm just wanting to make sure that you don't ever... Ever, 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 don't ever let yourself get intimidated out there when Laodicean Christianity turns the table on you and calls you divisive because you won't let your doctrine go. No, they cause the division when they left sound doctrine. You stick to what you've been handed, and you grab a hold of that thing, and you hold it fast, and don't you ever let it out of your grasp for anybody, for any cause, for any group, for any movement, or for anything. You've been commanded to grab a hold of that thing and don't let it out of your grasp. But that's the the first key way that sound doctrine is not endured in these last days. It is viewed as an interruption to unity. Now, most of you are not fulfilling the prophecy on that one. I'll I'll hand you that. But I think that we're going to pick up quite a few on this second one. Another way that sound doctrine is not being endured in these last days is it is viewed as irrelevant to practical Christian living. It is viewed as irrelevant to practical Christian living. You see, people go to church in the Laodicean age for what the church can do for them. We've talked before about the name Laodicean. For some of you folks who haven't been here through that teaching, the name of each one of these periods, the name of each one of these churches, God gives it a name that characterizes the overall uh, prevailing attitude of that, that particular time. The word Laodicea, the time we're presently living in, it just happens to mean the rights of the people. Forget about God's right to ownership of every single one of us and that every one of us were created for his pleasure... People in the layout of C and age go to church to get, not to give. People like to, to come to church, and, and when they come to church, they like to get help. You see, this is why they don't endure sound doctrine because they don 't see how sound doctrine affects their life, and so they want to go to church and they want to hear here's the biggie they want to hear stuff on relationships. Relationships is what we're dealing with in the latter part of the 90s, and so we we're gonna we're gonna just revolve the, the sermons around husbands and wives and employers and employees and parents and children and mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and how to relate to your in-laws and how to relate to your outlaws and you know, on and on and on. And, and if it's not if it's not relationships, then then it's gonna be success, and you're gonna get you know five ways to a successful life. Or, Five ways to financial success and you know all, all of this 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 stuff where people are are wanting to hear stuff that's gonna scratch them where they itch. But listen, tell a laodice and even in a fundamental Bible-believing church that you're gonna take two Sundays to talk about the theme of the Bible, the second coming of Christ. Show them the importance of that glorious day to God. Show them the importance of that day. To, to the Lord Jesus Christ as he finally gets what he deserves. Show him all of that! sure wish we'd get on to something that is hitting me where I live. Let me just tell you something, guys. If the second coming of Christ doesn't rock your world and doesn't affect you the way that you live, you've got problems in the very core of your relationship with god maybe maybe it's time that lay out a sea maybe we shake ourselves and say it's time that i got my heart right in my relationship with god and you know what if i get my heart right with god and i can't wait for the day that he finally gets glory and if i'm waiting for the day that he's finally getting glory, glory i promise you I'm going to set my life to glorifying him right now because I'm going to realize that in this stinking world right now, he doesn't get jack-deadly when it comes to glory. So when I, oh man, when I can't wait for him to get that glory, I'm going to glorify him today. And you know what? If I'm glorifying him today and I can't wait for him to come back, you know what? I'm going to love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. And you know what? I'm going to love you as my brother because the Holy Spirit of God that lives in me loves the Spirit of God that lives in you. To get to something that's a little more practical. Well, we're going to hit on this thing of, of the, the, the doctrine of the deity of, of Jesus Christ. you mean to tell me this is just a part one? As far down the road as, as we are with this thing? Come on, I mean, we've known that for years. And you see, we've got a, we've got a problem, especially in the layout of C&H, if you're, if you're a pastor. Okay, you know what the problem is? The job of the pastor, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 and verse 2, the job of the pastor is to feed the flock. Feed the flock of God which is among you. In in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, Paul is, is exhorting the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to Feed the church of God, watch this now, which He hath purchased with His own blood. That's the call. Feed them. Feed the flock. They're not your sheep. They're His sheep. And He's given you a responsibility of feeding them. They're the Lord's. And remember, as you're feeding them, remember that He purchased them with His own blood. And boy, I mean, you start to really understand the, the, the urgency of feeding them what they need. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 about how to be a good minister. And and listen to it. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. You see, a a good minister not only feeds the flock. Listen, all of them are feeding people stuff. I ain't going there. All of them are are feeding the, the, the flock. But what he says, don't just feed them. Feed them nourishing spiritual food. And he identifies for us what that nourishing spiritual food is. It's words of faith and good doctrine. But you've got to understand what God's saying back in the verse that we started with, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, what he's telling us is that Laodiceans don't have an appetite for sound doctrine. So do you see the dilemma? Let me share with you how maybe you can relate to what it's like to pastor a church in the Laodicean age. I want you to imagine that you have just adopted a 15-year-old boy. Okay? You just adopted one, and he's done every stinking thing he's wanted to do all his life. and he ain't listened to nobody tell him one thing. And all of his life, he has eaten potato chips, nachos, fritos. Cheetos, hot dogs, banana splits, and moon pies. I mean, that's all this this kid has ever known. And now you've taken the responsibility. And you're wanting to be a good parent. And now you're going to try to feed him something nourishing. And you're going to sit him down to a plate of carrots and broccoli and cauliflower Brussels sprouts. God help us. You know what? I, I mean, can you see? Oh, my goodness. The appetite that he's acquired. The fact that he ain't going to have anybody telling him anything because he's got rights. Now you're, you're going to try to nourish him up. Hey, lots of luck. And you see, we all need to realize that we're lay out a seed to some degree or another, and God tells us throughout First and 2 Timothy that we'd better get an appetite for doctrine. Wait, did you agree with that? <laughs> we better get an appetite for doctrine. And I'm not going to bring you through all of them, but do you realize that in, in the ten short chapters of those two little letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul brings up the subject of doctrine Twelve different times. And while Laodiceans turn their nose up at sound spiritual food and are looking for more Bible knowledge to make their life better, Paul writes to Timothy, that young pastor at the church at Ephesus, and would you listen to what he tells him? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Take heed unto thyself, Timothy, and unto the doctrine. Buddy, you better take heed to that doctrine thing. Listen, continue in them, for in doing this, doing what? Continuing in doctrine, in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. How's that for where you live? God said, you better get an appetite for this thing, folks. And, and Pastors, you better feed them doctrine. You better put that doctrine in some kind of a package. I don't care what you've got to do. Wrap it in a, in a piece of baloney, but make sure that somehow they get inside of them, they get them doctrine. And while we smugly turn up our noses at doctrine, wanting to something to hit us on our Mondays and to, Tuesdays, you know, practical Christian living, Paul says, Timothy... Give them doctrine because some Monday or Tuesday, some junior false prophet is going to come to their front door and blow them right off of their front porch. So to save them, Timothy, to save them, young pastors, give them doctrine, preach that book. That's why Paul told him in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine." In First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul is reminding Timothy how that he had besought him to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now let me ask you, how are you ever going to get to the point to where you charge someone not to teach doctrine that is contrary to this book if you don't know it yourself? You've got to know doctrine. If you're going to ever fulfill that scripture to charge some that they teach something that is contrary to that book. And listen, folks, if doctrine is that important to God, I'm telling you, we've got to get to the point to where it is that important to us. And if you don't have an appetite for it, you ought to pray. The, the whole purpose of this message for you today is that you might get to the point to where you begin to pray, oh, God, help me to have an appetite to learn and to know the doctrine. Of this book. In Titus chapter 1, in verse 9, it says that we are to hold fast the faithful word as we have been taught, that we may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Gainsayers are the ones who speak against, they speak against the sound doctrine of the Bible. And he goes on to say in Titus 1, verse 11, whose mouths, the mouths of these gainsayers, they must be stopped. Why? Because they subvert whole houses. And do you realize this morning, folks, that while we're sitting in here, that there are gainsayers that are on the streets in our own community right now subverting whole houses? And chances are good, if statistics are right, that many of them will be members of a Baptist church and quite possibly this one. Okay, and let's just run with this thing for just a sec. Let, 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 and we're going we're to finish up here in, in just a minute. But remember, I told you I was going to challenge you. I haven't challenged you yet, okay? Let's just suppose for a couple of minutes together here. Let, let's just suppose that I'm a, I'm a gainsayer, Okay? Let's say that I believe some things that are contrary to the sound doctrine of this book, specifically about the deity of Christ. Okay? And so let's just run with this thing for a second. You tell me that you believe that Jesus Christ is equal to God and is in fact Jehovah God. Now, if you're here this morning and you believe that right now, say amen. Okay. You believe Jesus Christ is equal to God and is, in fact, Jehovah God. Okay, man, I, I'm a gainsayer now. Hey, nice job. Okay, you just told me what you believe. But if I'm a gainsayer, i got to tell you, I'm not impressed. You know what? You just told me exactly what they, the people who discipled me told me that you were going to say when we brought up this, this whole subject. Okay? So now that you've gotten that out and, you know, the way that most people go when they, you know, they get all hyper when, you know, somebody comes to their door, you know, one of those gainsayers. And and so, you know, you make this bold stand. I believe that Jesus Christ is equal to God and that he is Jehovah himself. Okay, and and, and we're all real proud of ourselves, you know, because we've said that. and, And because we said that, we think that they're supposed to just roll over and die on our front porch like a roach that's been to the Motel 8 or whatever it is. But but rather you know than roll over and die. What what I say to you is oh we're wonderful. Um, Would you would you do this for me? Would you take me to two places in your Bible that teach in their context that Jesus Christ is God and that He's equal to God and that He's Jehovah God? Now I don't you know I've got the New World Translation. And look what Oh, you've got the King James version there. Well, would you do this? Would you take your King James version of the Bible and would you take me to those two places right now? Okay, now. I'm going to act like I'm not on your front porch right now waiting for your response. I'm going to I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to give you 10 seconds to think about it. Okay? 10 seconds. Okay? Now, they're not going to give you 10 seconds. Where are you going to take me in the Bible to prove that that is true. See, I'm not here right now. Okay, could you do it? Okay, if I were to just say right now, if you could do it, don't do this yet, okay? If you could do it, raise don't raise your hand. But if I said, raise your hand, and then I'm going to take five different people out of those that raise their hand, I'm going to let you take the next five minutes to do it. You ready? To take us to the Scripture, put it into context, teach us that Jesus Christ is God, equal to God, and is in fact Jehovah God? You going to be able to do it? Okay, and, 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 okay so I, I start to say, well, you know what, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or, or, or anything. Uh And so, you know, maybe we ought to just uh, approach this a little bit differently. At this point, are you going to slam the door in my face and drive me deeper into my own system? Because door after door, I can't find a Christian anywhere who knows anything beyond what they believe. Nobody at any door can ever open their book and ever show me why they believe what they believe? They make this great statement about Jesus Christ is equal to God. He is in fact Jehovah God. Nobody, nobody can take their book and ever prove it. Can you prove it? Now, guys, you see this is this is why we we just took the little time out on doctrine. We could have very nicely walked through. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 this morning and said, He is the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty. But you know what? If you can't take your Bible and you can't take me when I'm assaulting the most important doctrine in the entire Bible and you can't take me to two places to prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt, whoa, whoa, whoa. And you know what? I don't care. I don't care. If you don't want to show up for the next Sunday or whatever, that doesn't bother me. If this is not important to you, no problem. Go somewhere where they preach Snickers and moon pies. But you know what? I, I'm, I'm bound and determined at this point in this ministry to make sure that every single one of us can go toe-to-toe when those gainsayers come to our door, I want to make sure that you're not put on the spot like a lot of you right now are going, oh my goodness, I thought that I knew what I believed about this thing. I thought I knew why I believed it, but you can take your Bible and show me, okay? And and, and let me just show you what we don't know, okay? I know the time's getting late, but it's raining outside, y'all. Thank you. Amen. All three of you guys can stay and the rest of y'all can go get in the rain. Okay, now, now recognize, I, I've been trained as a gainsayer to, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ because he is important to our doctrine. You see, doctrine is important to them, even if it isn't to, to Fundamental Baptists. Okay, and, and I, because of that, I agree with you that he's a God and that God has given him a name that is above every other name, you see, other than his own. But you see, I, I want to I begin to show you that he's not Jehovah, okay? I want to show you that Jesus Christ is not Jehovah God. Now, can you imagine if a visitor just walked in the door at that point in this message this morning, I mean, that would kill me. Uh, I'm going to tell you why Jesus is not Jehovah God, okay? But but I'm the game-sayer. I'm playing this part, okay? And I'm going to use your Bible. I'm going to use your Bible right now to prove to you that Jesus is not Jehovah God. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to just, in your mind, we don't have time to listen to everybody, I want to see if you can go toe-to-toe with me. Because I'm getting ready right now to undermine your faith. I'm getting ready right now to take your King James Bible and prove to you that Jesus Christ is not Jehovah God. And I want to just see how many people I'd wig out if I was at your front door right now, okay? Here here, here we come. Okay, I'm going to begin to point you how that over in in James chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You see, I'm going to point out to you the fact that the Scripture clearly says God, the supreme, righteous, holy God, cannot be tempted with evil. And I'm going to point out for you there that that word God is the New Testament word for the only and true God. It's theos. Okay, And after presenting my case for that, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to run you over to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. So I'm going to say, you see, for Jesus Christ to have been tempted of the devil forty days, and in light of the Scripture that it says... That God will cannot be tempted with evil. What that does is that proves that Jesus Christ is not the supreme God. And we're just getting started. Okay. Now, next, I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy chapter six, verses thirteen through sixteen. And it says here, "I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession." that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and watch this, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom the honor and power everlasting amen and what i'm going to do is i'm going to back you up and i'm going to point out to you that the only potentate okay and that's the highest of the godhead the king of kings and the lord of lords listen that he only hath immortality and i'm going to point out to you that to be immortal in any dictionary on this planet means one who is exempt from death. And once I've nailed that, that the supreme God is exempt from death and he only, then I'm going to run you over to Revelation chapter 1 in verse 18 where Jesus himself admits, I am he that liveth and was dead. So you see, how could he then be the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords who hath who only hath immortality, if he died. You see, there's only one supreme potentate, King, King's Lord of Lords, who hath immortality, and it wasn't Jesus because he died. So, how you doing so far? How you contending for the faith? And while we're here, First uh, Timothy chapter six, verse sixteen, I, I, I'm going to call your attention to the fact that verse sixteen says that this. Only potentate, who only hath immortality, is so high and lofty and, and, and above every other that he dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. And watch this. Whom no man hath seen nor can see. You got that? The real God you can't see. And it says that again over in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. It says, no man hath seen God at any time. And you see, I'm going to say, so how could Jesus be the supreme God? Because John, who was a man, said in John chapter 1 and verse 34, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And he said over in John 1-1 that he heard him. And he saw him with his eyes. He looked at him, and his hands handled him. So you see, the true God couldn't be Jesus because no man has seen God, but plenty of men saw Jesus, didn't they? You know what? I'm just getting a little bit dry in my mouth. You want to just break for a little coffee here around the coffee table and just fellowship just a little bit? Because I've got some other things I want to show you here. And after our coffee, I, I, you know, I bring you over to John chapter 4 and verse 24 where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman in flesh and blood now. And, and he says to her, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, the point I want you to see is Jesus is saying, God, the true God, is a spirit. And then I'm going to run you over to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 where it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. And I'm, right on top of that, I'm going to bring you over to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 where it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. So you see, God, the true God, is a spirit but Jesus was made of a woman he was flesh and blood so, so do you see that he can't be the supreme Jehovah God of the Bible and at that point I, I might even tell you well you know the, the way the way that you, you've got to learn to interpret the Bible is by comparing scripture with scripture you see and, and what you need to make sure that you do is you're studying the Bible. There and I'm not sure what's your background. You are a Baptist. Oh, okay. make sure that you learn that principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture, and make sure that you learn the principle of of keeping verses in their context, like I've been doing with you. But I'm not through. Next, I want you to see how that over in First Samuel chapter two and verse three, the Bible says, "The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed." And I'm going to be very quick to point out. To you that the word Lord there in all capital letters in your Bible, just like it is up on your screen, that that's the word for Jehovah in, in the Hebrew, and the Jehovah, he says, Jehovah is a God of knowledge, and you know that what I'm going to do then? I'm going to run you over to Hebrews chapter five and verse eight, where it talks about Jesus and says, though he were a son, yet learned he. Obedience by the things which he suffered. You see, he, he had to, he had to learn some things because he's not Jehovah. And, and then I take you back to comparing scripture with scripture. I I'd take you back to Luke chapter two and verse fifty-two, where it plainly says that Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature, and in favor with God and man. You see, Jehovah is a God of knowledge, but Jesus had to come and learn obedience and increase in wisdom and knowledge. So. He he certainly can't be Jehovah. And and besides, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, verse 3, excuse me, watch, watch in your Bible what it clearly says. Blessed be God. There's that one true God again. And watch this. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if he's the Father, then he must have existed before him. And remember John one thirty four that we looked at earlier? The record of Jesus was that he was the son of God. Now, how can he be equal to God if God eternally existed? And, and Jesus, you see, he was a son who came at a different point in time. And you know what? I, I don't want to offend you unnecessarily so today, but if you're sporting a, a new American Standard Bible and I'm a gainsayer, I can't wait for this point because what I'm going to do, I'm going to drop you down to verse 18 of John chapter 1 where it teaches in your Bible that Jesus was a begotten, not a son, he was a begotten God. And I want to see you take your New American Standard Bible and I want you to contend for the faith in the face of a gainsayer when your Bible clearly says he is a begotten God. And at about this point, I'm beginning to tell you about what time our services start over at the hall. But you see, we'd be having so much fun in our little Bible study in our living room that that I couldn't resist just showing you two more. I mean, it, it, so what I'd do is I'd run you back to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 where God says, For I am the Lord. And there's that word Jehovah again. And watch what is true of Jehovah God. He says... I change not. Now, Jehovah God doesn't change. Amen. Okay, And then I take you over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 9 where it says, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. And I'd be very quick to point out that if he did something, and then, now that he's done it, he's not going to do it anymore. The simple fact is, he what? He changed. And you see, Jesus changes; Jehovah doesn't. And now that I've brought you through all of those, and I, I tell you that that you're probably ready now for the testimony of Jesus Himself on this subject, and the fact that in Mark chapter ten and verse eight, eighteen, Jesus Himself said, "Why callest thou me good? There, there's none good but one, that is God." You, you see, Jesus He didn't claim to be God. He just he said, "There's only one, and that's God." And I mean, what an opportunity for him to, to say it right there. And in John chapter fourteen, in verse twenty-eight, he said, "This my Father is greater than I." You know, this has been so much fun. What are you guys doing Friday night? Man, I'd love to get together with him. We don't necessarily have to talk about Bible next time. Well, let's just let's just go out to eat and let's just have fun. Hey, that'd be, that'd be great. Man, nobody's ever shown me these things in the Bible like you have. Now, let me ask you, my fellow Laodicean. And I'm not trying to be smart. But is there still some, some basic doctrine you think you might need to get under your belt? Hello? How'd you do? Could could you go toe-to-toe with me on that? Okay, now, boy, we've left this service in a lurch, haven't we? Let let me just, for the record, lest anybody be here that, that doesn't understand, Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He is equal to God. He existed in all times. We'll prove that. But I felt like it was necessary for where we are in our spiritual growth as a church for me to just get a big band of Cubans together and pile them up over in a corner to just start firing away at you to maybe just get you to the point to where you don't get quite so cocky when it comes to the areas and things that we've known simply for years. So, folks, let's this week, let, let's see if we can't acquire an appetite for doctrine. What we're going to do is we're going to come in here next Sunday. and We're going to, you, if you're not prepared to say amen next Sunday, don't come. Okay? Because what we're going to do is we're going to show the glory of Jesus Christ that He alone is Jehovah God. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's what this church is all about. We would love to share with you how Jesus Christ, who lived on this planet, who died for your sin and mine, and rose again the third day, how that Jesus Christ can move into your life by His Spirit and change your life and your eternal destiny. We'd love the opportunity of being able to share that with you today. Let's bow our heads. Father, I do...